0: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted that you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression. And so each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor, with the help of a leading commentator, a major issue of topical importance, events of historical significance, or just something that we find fascinating. This week, as the war in Ukraine rages on, I'm very pleased to be joined by Garry Kasparov. Gary was born and raised in the Soviet Union and, of course, is a former world chess champion and one of the most recognised chess grandmasters in the world. But in recent years, he's been an outspoken commentator and a strong proponent of liberal democracy. He's been a particularly fierce opponent of Vladimir Putin, and he left Russia a decade ago and lives in New York now. In 2015, he published a book called Winter is Coming, in what now looks a remarkably prescient warning that Putin would take advantage of the appeasement he was facing from the West – to expand Russia's global power by force if he wasn't stopped. And seven years later, here we are with Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. Gary Kasparov, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So um, you were indeed right. A lot of people were sceptical. And indeed, the whole history of the West's perhaps engagement with Vladimir Putin over the last decade or so has been repeatedly refusing to see what was in front of its face in terms of what his real intentions were and his determination to go about achieving them do you think that this invasion of Ukraine has now changed everything do you think we really do now fully understand and grasp the the threat and, and the need to do something about it
1: I can only hope so because uh, to understand Putin all we had to do was to listen uh, my uh, first article of warning was published in The Wall Street Journal on January 4 2001. And all I did, I just was listening to Putin's own words. And uh, when Putin said that there were no such a thing as a former KGB agent, I knew that Russia's fragile democracy was in danger. And when Putin said, actually repeatedly said, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, I knew uh, Russia's newly independent neighbors were at risk. And eventually, when Putin... Talked at the Munich Security Conference 15 years ago in 2007 uh, about a return to spheres of influence. I knew he was ready to launch his attack because that was the language of Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, language used by Hitler and Stalin to divide uh, Europe. And of course, next year he attacked the Republic of Georgia. And I remember that after this attack, which for me was just the um, most convincing proof of his intentions, the West didn't respond. They tried to spread the blame between the Republic of Georgia and then-president Mikhail Saakashvili and Putin's Russia, though technically Putin was not the president at the time. He was puppet master behind the stage, having his uh, shadow man Medvedev sitting with him in in Kremlin. And America, instead of doing something, offered a reset policy. And I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, and um, I predicted attack on Ukraine. And later people asked me, how did you know? I said, I looked at the map. And, uh, and then, of course, Crimea. I mean, what else do, did you need to understand that Putin would not uh, respect any international treaty signed by Russia? And uh, for him, Crimea was a very important step in this direction because America and, and, and Great Britain had some kind of legal responsibilities to defend Ukraine because in 1994, there was a so-called Budapest Memorandum when after uh, heavy pressure from Clinton administration, Ukrainians gave up their nuclear arsenal. Which few people remember was a third largest in the world. Ukraine had more nuclear warheads than China, France, and Great Britain combined. And then you know what we heard is, oh, memorandum is not is a not a binding document. And Putin heard what uh, he wanted, so uh, he could continue his expansion, recovering Soviet Russian influence uh, without any consequences because the sanctions that were announced, though they were trumpeted as something very powerful, they had almost no impact on the Russian economy. What, why do you
0: think, As uh, you, you, you spell out the history very clearly, and if you look at the American, successive American administrations, George W. Bush famously, of course, said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul, and then... As you say, the invasion of Georgia happened in 2008. Nothing was really done about it then. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, in twenty when they came in in 2009, talked about the reset with Russia. Then we had the, uh, the war in eastern Ukraine, the, the annexation of Crimea. Nothing was done about it. I mean, what were they doing? Why were we willfully suspending our skepticism or indeed our concern about Putin? Was it because we thought there were bigger geopolitical concerns and that Russia in the end, was no longer the kind of big threat that we thought it was during the Cold War? I think we have to
1: start earlier. We have to start with Bush 41, not with with Bush 43. I often suffered criticism from both parties while criticizing president from another party. And I, my response is, I have a record, actually, on the pages of the Wall Street Journal, criticizing six consecutive presidents, three Republicans and three Democrats, for their policies. I'm nonpartisan, but, you know, I believe that, you know, for current failures of American foreign policy, we have to go back as far as 1991. I think that this administration, the Biden administration, is, is having the same kind of fear as Bush 41 had in 1991. It was infamous uh, speech in, in Kiev few months before the collapse of the soviet
0: union so-called chicken kiev, speech, chicken kiev right. um, allegedly penned by Condoleezza rice and the message was by the way she denied that on on this very podcast she denied that she'd written it but
1: maybe okay whoever whoever wrote it so this is a, it's somebody that from general school of stuff yeah this is maybe maybe it was jim baker we again this is it's not it doesn't matter who actually wrote it he delivered it and the message was 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 absolutely clear so Ukraine must stay in the Soviet Union because it, it could have drastic consequences uh, for Ukraine and, and, and for the Soviet Union if, you know, they follow nationalists and uh, offer, uh, choose a secession. Yeah. And I understand the fear uh, that because they didn't know what to expect after the collapse of the Soviet Union, same problems, nuclear weapons and and chaos. And I think now we are seeing the repetition of um, the same unfortunate U.S. policy failure. It's a fear that a Putin's military defeat in Ukraine could lead to the collapse of his um, dictatorship and eventually collapse of Russia. So I think that it's going back to the 90s. The problem with, uh, now we're going to Clinton administration, was that the end of the Cold War was, surpri- was a big surprise for, for Americans as well as anyone else. And... Uh, Instead of coming up with a new game plan, because America was a winner, Uh, the free world won the the Cold War, but it was time to think about new strategy, time to think about a game plan for the world, same way as Truman administration uh, worked out the plan in 1946. At that that time, they had to face Joseph Stalin and his unsettled geopolitical ambitions. And this administration, uh, Harry Truman administration, built all the institutions that helped America to stop communism and eventually defeat it uh, for, four decades later. And there was a plan. You had presidents both uh, from uh, the, both Democrats and Republicans, having maybe some differences, but still following the plan. And and in 1991, we needed something else than simply you know uh, being stuck with the um, old international institutions. One of the problems with the United Nations. You know, it's, it was created in 1945 to prevent a war, between and another war, most likely between the Soviet Union and the United States. But in 1991, we needed an organization that could help us solving problems, not freezing them. And I think that's the, the fact is that Bill Clinton became president when America was all powerful and could basically dictate its terms to the rest of the world. And when he left, Al Qaeda was ready to strike already
0: know it was an indication that something was wrong. I mean, and also to be fair, you know, a part again, Al-Qaeda was ready to strike, Al-Qaeda did strike. And of course, Russia, Putin was very quick to offer support and help to the United States then. So I suppose there was some, you know, again, we were strategically distracted, first by terrorism, and then subsequently by China. and, And maybe that explains why we were, Kind of willing to turn a blind eye to a lot of what Putin was doing and and saying and eventually doing.
1: Yes, but it's the the the, the um the um there were indications about the rise of Russian nationalism even under Yeltsin. The Iranian problem, which is it's still a big headache uh, today, and I, it's no no one knows how to solve it. The Iranian problem goes all the way back to 1995, when Bill Clinton visited Moscow, having bipartisan resolution that en- enabled him to to threaten Yeltsin to cut any. F- Funding of Russia, that was like a lifeline for Russian economy at the time, if Russia continued its nuclear cooperation with Iran. And he did nothing. Oh, it says yeah. Fine. Let's 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 move on. So that was that was not a big issue. Uh,
0: Look, sorry to interrupt, Gary. Because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. But you ascribe what's happening in Russia to Putin's you know, expansionism and his aggression. But but there are other people, people from you know George Kennan to Robert Gates, who I actually had on the podcast last week, and in Russia from Boris Yeltsin to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said particularly about Ukraine that Ukraine was a particularly important valuable sensitive issue for russia and that it's not just putin that it's ingrained in sort of russian self-identity and russian geopolitical outlook that ukraine could not simply be allowed to go along with the the west and joining nato or joining the eu because that would represent something that would really tear at the heart of russia itself
1: you don't agree with that Yes, I know. You're right. It's ingrained in uh, the matrix of Russian nationalism, of Russian imperialism. But, you know, we are in the 21st century. I mean, if we want to solve global problems, we have to eradicate the virus of imperialism. And as for Russian nationalists, I know quite well this is the, the different factions there. And it's not all, you know, it's, they're, they're not very cohesive. So yes, there are some of these groups, and of course Putin belongs to, ideologically to these groups, that believe that you know Russia has rights for Ukraine and even for other parts of the Russian empire. But there are many, and by the way, most of them are in exile now or in jail, who believed and still believe that Russia um, is having is having criminal war in Ukraine because the future of Russia, it's an integration in Europe, you know, as, as maybe as a confederation of Russian republics. They are less concerned about Russian territorial integrity. If Tatarstan or Chechnya would like to be separate, fine. But again, it's an ideological fight inside even this nationalist movement. But of course, you know, it's it's, this: the free world had to respond at early stage at any sign of um, recurring Russian nationalism. That's why I mentioned Boris Yeltsin. And then of course Putin demonstrated it, you know, and and spoke about it quite frankly. And I think every time when he spoke about it, that's why I mentioned the the conference uh, in Munich in 2007, he had no response. Yeah, the the moment when Putin talked about spheres of influence, Americans had to respond even harshly to tell him that, you know, just, you know, remember, it's 21st century. This is not 19th century. And it's not surprising that, you know, that Putin eventually got a message, what he wanted to hear, same way as Hitler in the 30s. Uh, Oh, I could do that. And then, you know, he thought that he could go even beyond Europe. We, We talked about 2014 Crimea. I think it was a result of Obama's blinking uh, in 2013 when he decided uh, against intervention in Syria. That was, you know, that's, I think for me, it was mandatory because he drew the red line and he had to shoot when Assad crossed it.
0: We need to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Garry Kasparov on the future of Russia and the world. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back. We're talking with former world chess champion and a current champion of liberal democracy in the world, Gary Kasparov. Let's let's look at what's going on now um again whatever the intent of putin whatever his larger ambitions i think we can all agree that the war in the first 6 7 weeks has not gone According to his expectations, or frankly, according to pretty well anyone's expectations, the Ukrainians have been putting up a hell of a fight uh, significantly with weapons from the West, from NATO countries and others, um, and is really rebuffing. It looks like, you know, the, the, the Russians have essentially withdrawn from Kyiv or the areas around Kyiv, which there was their initial target to sort of seize the capital quickly. They've fallen back there, seem to be fighting, concentrating their forces now in the East and the South. What's your sense, knowing Putin as you do and knowing his geopolitical uh, ambitions, What's your sense now of what Putin's objectives are now that he's clearly failed to achieve that first knockout strike that he seemed to be going for? What do you think he might be willing to accept, sure, of that?
1: Frankly speaking, I don't care what he might be willing to accept. I think, you know, we all owe Ukrainians every resource, every weapon they need to win this war. So this, I think that's, that's a very wrong, you know, concept. What you saying now, this is the Western strategy. The Western policy is still looking for any means or ways
0: to offer Putin off-ramps. And again, in the end, it's the Ukrainians. You know, we have to do what we can for the Ukrainians. Uh, it, no, you don't agree with that? Yes, but it, let's not forget, in 1994, United
1: States pressed Ukraine to give up nuclear weapons. I think that it's maybe not today, but definitely before the war, this administration have been pressing the Ukrainians to accept so-called Minsk, a Minsk uh, uh, deal that would offer Putin political control of Ukraine. Ukraine was uh, a destruction for this administration and, and, and still a destruction now. And when you said Putin expected to win the war quickly, yes, so CIA and so Pentagon. So just it's the, it's, I'm, I'm shocked now that the uh, Director Burns and General Milley, those who blundered here, because they talked about Ukrainian capital uh, would fall in 96 hours, that Ukraine would not last for three or four, more than three or four days. They are still you know calling the shots and and I think this administration now is just has no clear strategy how to work with Ukraine it blocked supply of uh, modern weapons for Ukraine to win the war you said that West, Western weapons 99 percent of the weapons supplied to Ukraine it's based on the concept that it will be another Afghanistan of Vietnam that's the that's the those are the, the countries that were brought in by American officials because they thought Ukraine army would be destroyed and then we'll talk about guerrilla war So fine, javelins, stingers, and all sorts of, you know, this small arms, but you do not win war with this kind of weapons and planes, long-range artillery, missiles that can hit Russian warships that are shelling Ukrainians from cities from, from Black Sea,
0: heavy armor. So that's all is this blocked by the United States. So again, I think we have to agree that it's up to the Volodymyr Zelensky and his government as to what kind of terms they end this war on. But in your view, we in the West should be urging him to fight... For victory, to go for all-out victory, defeat Russia, get them completely off the territory of Ukraine, and do whatever we can to achieve that. Is that what you say?
1: No. Again, as you said, urging him. We have no moral rights to urge Ukrainians to do whatever. If they decide to give up part of their territory, that's their choice. If they want to fight to the bitter end, that's their choice. We have to support them and offer them every resource, every weapon to win the war. And that's what we're not doing. And for us to be real friends of Ukraine. And also to take care about our own safety, because God forbid, Putin wins in Ukraine, he will not stop there. And uh, are you sure that the um, uh, this piece of paper called Article Five will stop him? I'm just I'm shocked to hear that. Oh, we have no um, uh, obligations to defend Ukraine because it's not a member of NATO, but we will fight for every inch of NATO territory. How come? Are you going to fight you know in Lithuania and Poland against Martians or against the same Russians? If you're afraid of Putin's nukes. Why these nations should build America, that America will come to their rescue facing Putin's army, bloodthirsty army that will be fresh of success in Ukraine. Right now, we have a unique opportunity to destroy Putin's war machine using Ukrainian manpower and determination and their spirit. And all we need is to offer them real help, give them weapons. And um, also, you need, you need strategy. And strategy includes not
0: only tanks but also banks. Again, I don't fundamentally disagree, but we do have a different moral obligation, don't we, to members of NATO than we do to Ukraine? I mean, the whole point of being a member of NATO and the whole point, I think, of why NATO has so far declined to admit Ukraine is because we are prepared to do whatever it takes to defend NATO countries. And that if you're, by definition, if you're outside that alliance, we aren't under the same obligation to you.
1: But why Ukraine was not admitted in 2008? They asked you know, as early as 2008 to be admitted. The war would not take place if Ukraine were a member of NATO. So, and also it's, you know, we, you're talking about obligations. I don't know what's moral obligations or you're talking about piece of paper. Again, Budapest memorandum was, now we understand piece of paper. I don't want to, uh, for us to check if Article 5 is also a piece of paper the moment Putin crosses a NATO borders in Lithuania or Poland. Actually, most likely Lithuania, small country. It doesn't have the same resource as Ukraine to fight back. But again, I bring us back to strategy because right now is what I see, actually what I don't see, it's a cohesive strategy by the free world to oppose Putin Uh, because we hear uh, so many statements about what America and the West will not do, but we don't hear anything about what we will do. And Putin reads them, you know, and moves on. We will not uh, close skies. Great. We will not, you know, respond to uh, Russia's use of WMDs. Okay. For me, that's disastrous. Because that will embolden Putin and also will give a sense of impunity to his generals and admirals that will have to carry this criminal order if it, God forbid, comes from Kremlin.
0: What do you think are the risks? And again, what's what concerning the Biden administration and presumably most other NATO countries, although not those immediate neighbors, I think it's fair to say, but certainly the kind of the Western flank of NATO anyway, is this concern that Putin will escalate, that he will use either on the Ukrainians or, God forbid, even beyond that he will use weapons of mass destruction and possibly even escalate and it's part of you know there's this idea of escalate to de-escalate that's part of russian military doctrine do you think that's one either overrated that either the fear of that is overrated or two doesn't matter you know the stakes are so high here that frankly even if he is going to escalate, we have to face him down. By the way, do you re- remember when Russia included uh,
1: this um, a nuclear element in its military doctrine? So that's, yeah. it's, it's the Russian doctrine uh, actually allowed to use nukes in the regional conflicts in 2009. Yeah, yeah. In 2009. So at, at the time where Obama and Clinton were busy, you know, just, you know, working on reset policy, Russia upgraded, quote unquote, its military policy to include nukes as a permittable a tool for regional conflicts. Now, speaking about this, is again, use. Again, I heard you saying, oh, if Russia uses it in Ukraine or, God forbid, uh, beyond Ukraine in other territories. For me, that's constitutional a real problem. What if they use, let's start with chemical, a chemical warhead that lands in the Western Ukraine one mile away from Polish border. Are we going to start measuring, you know, this is the distance? And that's, by the way, Putin can, can do it. Same with nukes. So it could land in Ukraine, but it will definitely affect NATO countries. Is it uh, aggression against NATO? I bet you there will be people in Washington or in Brussels in other European capitals, saying, no, 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 no. You know, we we had experts there. They found out that it did not hit NATO territory. And we promised to, to defend every inch of NATO territory, but it was five inches, you know, on the Ukrainian side. So that's a problem because the adequate response means that NATO, and of course it reads America, must say now that any... Russian military base or warship that fires warhead or uh, missile with, with a nuclear or chemical warhead will be immediately destroyed. Right. And then, then we have a chance, a very good chance, in my opinion, that those who are responsible to carry Putin's order, these admirals and generals, they will be seriously considering whether they have to push the button because they will die in five minutes or they will have to sabotage Right now, the escalation is in Putin's hands. He keeps escalating, and by the way, killing civilians in thousands—probably now in tens of thousands—that doesn't qualify as escalation, or we don't care.
0: Your concern then is your critique is actually that we've moved a little, but we are maybe appeasement is too strong, but we are still not really facing up to the threat that Putin represents. And this this restraint, this restraint that we're exercising—no to a no-fly zone, no to offensive weapons, very cautious response to anything that Putin may do. That still in a in a way represents just a kind of higher level of appeasement, is that right?
1: Look, again, it's it's I, I don't ask you to waste time, you know, on the supple definitions offensive defensive. I believe that Ukraine is fighting aggression. Every weapon for Ukraine is is defensive because it, it fights for survival. Actually it's fighting for all of us. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I get that. But my, my, my point is I'm sure you you still really think that despite all the warnings we've had for twenty years, all the warnings you've written about and you've spoken about, despite you know, the ultimate warning, the, the existential warning of him actually crossing the border and invading Ukraine, you still don't think we're quite up to the challenge. We're quite gr- grasping the scale of the threat that he represents is that right
1: I, i'm not thinking i'm just looking at the facts mm. since the beginning of the war european union offered ukraine an assistance for over a billion dollars mm. a billion euros actually at the same time europe paid for russian oil and gas 35 billion euros yeah, yeah. now yeah. Uh, again what should i think about it so oh we can't do it because the prices everything will go up absolutely But you have been doing it for 20 years. Now, the difference is, you know, you pay more for for gas. You know, again, it's all prices will go up. But Ukrainians are paying in blood now. Europe is still funding Putin's war machine because this money is being used to fund Putin's war efforts in in Ukraine. And again, going back to America, where is American leadership? It's the same old story, leading from behind. It also brings it back to Harry Truman in 1951. He said, we can't lead the forces of freedom from behind. And that's America now is trying to find... Um, it's it. i think the administration is trying to muddle through without taking risks without taking a stand because america must come up with a strategy and strategy it's not just biden saying oh god for god's sake this man cannot stay in power and then being you know uh, the statement being backtracked by administration he keeps repeating it and then then backtracking it's it's a vicious circle i want to hear that you know the sanctions that are being imposed on russia will not be lifted until ukrainian territory is cleared crimea included And I think that the problem with with this administration and uh, of agents I mentioned, CIA and Pentagon and, and others, they are terrified by the fact that if Putin loses the Ukrainian war, it could lead to his demise and collapse of Russia. That's the biggest concern. That's why I don't think they're ready to work for Ukraine to win the war and for Putin to lose.
0: Just, I want to ask you about that. We don't have a lot of time left, but that's the next question I wanted to ask you. Is is there any vulnerability? Does Putin face any domestic vulnerability? I mean, everything we see from Russia, you know, the opinions, I know you can't count on opinion polls, but we know that Russians are getting a completely different picture of this war, both in terms of the justification for it. In fact, they can't even describe it as a war and the progress of it, that Russian people are being told it's all going incredibly well and uh, the process of denazification of Ukraine and all of that is going brilliantly and the Russians are doing magnificent. So he doesn't seem like there's there's much you know threat from domestic. I mean, the unrest. Obviously, they're unhappy with the economic sanctions and some of the implications of them. But but they're not facing. He doesn't seem to be facing widespread, broad public opinion hostility. And 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 Russia does not have a history of palace coups, right? I mean, there's no people don't generally move against the leader. Is he vulnerable at all? Oh, by the way, speaking of palace coups, Russia had plenty of palace coups in the 18th
1: century. <laughs> yeah, if thinking about palace coups, and by the way, you says know, this is we still don't know. What's happened to, jo- to Joseph Stalin? There are many indications that uh, some of the members led by Lavrenti Beria, they actually decided to end Stalin's life prematurely because Stalin was planning a th- World War Three. He definitely looked at, at, at the global map and he was unsatisfied with Russia- Soviet gains in, in, in Europe uh, and, and, and the peaceful resolution in Korea, in, in Asia. So. Again, it's, it's a speculation.
0: They did delay to push Khrushchev out too.
1: So. Bingo. Russian history has many cases where, you know, the, the groups of in, in power, they unsatisfied or scared by the policies of the leader, they conspired against him. So now, with Putin, is, is, is different because it's, it, it's a dictatorship. It's a fascist dictatorship, and he has all the power. I think he has even more power than Stalin because Stalin had Politburo and people like Beria. Putin is surrounded by, by his cronies and henchmen with no, um, no uh, aspirations to take over. But even the worst cowards can act out of their fear if they understand that the ship is going to, to think. And the precondition for any change in Russia whether it's the social economic revolt on the streets with millions of people getting, uh, getting to the streets and, and protesting, or with Putin's uh, entourage deciding it's time to act and to find a scapegoat, which is always a dictator, it's a military defeat in Ukraine. Until Russian troops are defeated in Ukraine decisively, that you cannot hide this anymore, nothing will happen. And that's why I think you know, that state the free world you know, must supply Ukraine with everything they need to win the war. Unless it happens, there will be no revolt on the streets. Or, or what you call palace coup. And Putin needs to demonstrate that he had something in Ukraine. That's why now they, as we said, they removed troops from Kiev. They failed to take it in, in three, four days. Then they had a few other attempts. They failed. And the troops in Kiev, in, nor- in northern Ukraine, were open for the attacks from, from the west. So they concentrated everything in the east and the south. And I think the plan now is to cut Ukraine from the sea. So to control territories from Luhansk to Odessa. And Ukraine is fighting back. It's the outcome of this battle is still unknown. But uh, every day that that they do not receive weapons, uh, sophisticated weapons, you know, increases Putin's chances to claim more territories. And then, you know, then he still hopes he can go back to negotiating table because his diplomatic isolation is not complete. Recently, we had the Austrian prime minister visiting Moscow. And we still don't know what happens if Putin decides to go to Indonesia to G20. Will Americans attend it? Uh, will Brits attend it? So what about isolation? What about the blockade? What about, you know, making clear to, not just to Putin, but to his bureauc- to top bureaucrats, to his generals, to uh, Russian public, that, you know, Russia is completely isolated.
0: Final well, question, uh, Gary, and this is a fascinating conversation, which we could talk longer, but um, the, as, as someone, as, as a Russian born, as a, you were born in the Soviet Union, obviously, is there a, and this is, forgive this, because this is a sort of a Western cliche about Russia, but it does look as though this is a for – all, for all the – you've said about Vladimir Putin and his own personal ambitions and his own personal character – this pattern of Russia seeming to fall under authoritarian, autocratic rule, despite repeated attempts to democratise. You know, you can go back to I well, was in you know Alexander II. You know, tried to, to democratise. You know, liberated the serfs and democratise, and then he was assassinated. and It went back into autocracy. You had the 1905 and then the 1917 revolution. The 1917 revolution was supposed to be a great liberation of the proletariat. It turned out to be one of the most um, oppressive regimes ever. 1990 comes along. We get another revolution. Another the repressive. Authoritarian regime is overthrown again, and then within a decade we've got Vladimir Putin, and we've um, we now see what's going on. Is this just inevitable? I mean, is Russia just seem to the the Russian people just doomed to this kind of autocratic rule?
1: I don't think so. Uh,
0: uh, by the way, you mentioned
1: 1917. There was a great uh, democratic revolution in February 1917. What happened in October 1917 was the Bolshevik takeover. Actually, it was counter-revolution that moved Russia away from its past to uh, democracy. Yes, 1991 was a great moment, and we celebrated the the fall of the evil empire. And we had a chance. We, again, it was a very feeble uh, democracy in in the 90s, and it didn't uh, withstand a history test when the KGB lieutenant colonel took over. But I would not be so pessimistic because I look around. Let's uh, look at Korea. If the country was divided in 1953, so the North-South, now the North is the is the biggest gulag in, in history, because the whole country is one gulag. And the South Korea is uh, one of the most vibrant economies in the world and liberal democracy. They even you know, impeached their, their president and uh, and put uh, the head of the uh, largest corporation behind bars for white collar crimes. So I don't think anything is determinated by sort of genetic curse. But I think that we are now reaching a point where The future of Russia will depend whether we can, as I said already, eradicate the virus of imperialism. Russia has to make this transition from imperialist state. From an empire to a national state that may be smaller in size, though I don't think we'll lose many territories, but we'll, we'll um, go back to the family of civilized nations. I think there's a strong push for that in, inside Russia. You can see millions of people now just leaving Russia. They don't want to be part of Putin's oppressive regime. And I believe that Russia will have a chance, at least we have to give Russia a chance. Because the future, you already mentioned China, the future of the free world will depend on our fight against Chinese imperialism, against Chinese com- communism, and Russia must be our ally, must be ally of the free world. And I think there's a very good chance, and, and that's why winning this war in Ukraine and uh, making sure that Putin regime will collapse, that's the best hope for the free world, that the 21st century will, will not see another Cold War with unpredictable result, but rather Will will lead us to another to to a new triumph.
0: Russia can be an ally, you think, in the end?
1: It has to be an ally because, again, my dream is, and I'm willing to uh, contribute to this goal for Russia, stop being a permanent problem, but to become a part of the global solutions.
0: That's a uplifting note on which to end surprisingly one thank you very much indeed gary kasparov thanks for joining us
1: thank you for inviting me
0: well that's it for this week's episode of free expression with me jerry baker from the wall street journal editorial pages thank you very much for listening and please do join us again next week for another deep exploration of the issues that are driving our world thanks for listening and goodbye